It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello. Welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York. I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. Welcome to the show. It's episode 205, and as usual, we'll be joined by our fantastic international team of journalists to make sense of what's going on in the world. And there is a lot going on. We'll be talking about how deep sea mining could disturb marine life and the jewellery people made from giant sloths thousands of years ago. We'll also talk about a mathematics proof so complicated that scientists still can't agree on whether it makes sense, which makes me feel a little bit better about my math skills. And this is 10 years after it was proposed. And we're going to talk about using CRISPR to make better wood. We've also got a birthday to celebrate. Woo! It's been one year since the James Webb Space Telescope began sending back images, and many of these have just been draw-droppingly stunning. But it's not been all about the visuals. It's also been an amazing 12 months from a science point of view, too. JWST has allowed us to peer back further in time in the universe than ever before. And so here to tell us all about it is our space reporter, Leia Crane, who's based in Chicago. Hey, Leia. Hello. So... I feel like this year has really reinvented JWST. Before it launched, there were just these years and years of build-up. It felt like it was never going to launch, and then suddenly it did. Yeah, it had become kind of a joke that uh, (laughs) JWST will launch when hell freezes over. The other thing is that after it launched, it had 344 potential single-point failures, which are things that if one tiny little thing goes wrong, the whole mission is ruined. And still it made it. I remember it now. It was Christmas Day, wasn't it, when it launched? Yeah. So JWST, it's effectively the replacement, the next generation for the Hubble Space Telescope, which launched in the 1990s. And then for years sent back these amazing pictures. But JWST is a pretty significant upgrade. Could you talk us through it a bit? You know, how does it do it and why is it so good? Yeah, well, first things first, Hubble is still sending back some pretty great pictures. Uh, It's not time to say goodbye to that quite yet. (laughs) For sure. (laughs) But the the simple answer to why JWST is such an upgrade is just that it's bigger, so it can see farther, it can see more clearly, and it also observes primarily in the infrared, whereas Hubble is more in the visible spectrum. So it can see different things, especially things that are further away, because those things are redder because of the expansion of the universe. 
Yeah, and we've we've seen that in some of these images, right, that we've been able to see further. And they look slightly different because some of them are in this infrared range that you mentioned. On our website, we've actually got eight of the best images which you gathered together for us, and we'll link to that in the show notes. But beyond just being beautiful images, what else have, has the photos that they've sent back told us about the universe? So much. Um, I'd say so far the biggest finding is all the galaxies that it's seen that are extraordinarily far away. Some of them are so distant that they're pretty much impossible under our current ideas of galaxy formation. We have no clue how they could possibly have had time to form. Amazing. Uh, so that whole paradigm might have to be rewritten, which is a pretty big deal. It's also been finding all kinds of gases in the atmospheres of exoplanets, which was one of its main goals. We don't really know all that much about what those gases mean yet, but it's going to be a big deal for our understanding of planets beyond our solar system. And also, what I like about it is that it helps us think of them as an actual place instead of just a dot of light in the sky in the distance. And I'll mention one more thing, which is that these pictures, some of the most gorgeous pictures are pictures of star-forming regions, and we've gotten some real incredible insights on how star formation works because those infrared observations let us pierce through the dust to see the stars in the process of being born. What is your favorite shiny object so far? <laughs> um, it's really hard to pick just one because they're so varied and they're so cool. <laughs> I really like the weird sort of ghostly infrared pictures of the planets in our solar system. But my favorites are probably the pictures of other galaxies, just because the diversity of these other galaxies is astonishing. A lot of times we think of them all as looking like a perfect spiral, like the Milky Way, mm -hmm. but they absolutely don't. And it's wild. And every single one of the pictures is fascinating and different. And they're all real sparkly because of the star <laughs> formation, too. Yeah. And I, I think I was reading, you know, this is the first year of bringing back images I think I was reading that they're going to get even more ambitious in the future years. Like this was kind of like the the year of maybe being a bit more conservative. But if we look ahead another year, another 10 years, you know, decades, what could more images allow astronomers to understand better? I think it's cheating to say pretty much everything, but <laughs> that is the answer. The images may be my favorite part, but a lot of the most important things JWST is studying are actually revealed in the other kinds of data it's taking. Like I said earlier, the early galaxies are really fascinating, and I think we're going to learn a lot more about them and how they're different from the Milky Way and how they're similar. So far, a lot of them are really shockingly similar. We're also going to understand a lot more about dark matter and how it clumps around galaxies and other objects and the large-scale structure of the universe, which I find personally really, really fascinating. And plus there's exoplanets, so it's really just going to keep being a fire hose of new data. Amazing. Can't wait for that fire hose to continue. Um, but before you go, Leia, you've got some pretty exciting news. You're going to be hosting a new podcast series for us called Dead Planet Society. It's a pretty intriguing name. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited for it. Uh, it's not just sort of chatting about space. A news editor at New Scientist, Chelsea White, and I sat down to discuss some really wild hypothetical questions about the universe, but we did it with real science and real scientists, so it's not too crazy. Um, <laughs> but the questions are like, what if we punched a hole all the way through a planet? Or in our first episode, we're talking about, could we kill the sun? 
that that sounds great. But I must ask, I, I know it's a bit hot at the moment, but why do we want to kill the sun? <laughs> well, you know, everyone's thought about if we did a little tinkering, what would happen? We're just taking it to a larger scale. The bad news is you can't really kill the sun, not even with a water balloon the size of the sun. So oh. that also, now that I think about it, might be good news, depending on how you're viewing it. And we've got a fun little teaser clip of that right now. How much water would we need to gather to make a black hole out of the sun? Okay, so we're going to have to do two things. First, add a bunch of water to the sun and then either wait a super long time, which we don't want to do. Yeah, we already said no thank you to that. Or we can crush it down really small. Okay, so we need one of those like lemon juicer things, right? Where you squish it, but sun sized. <laughs> we can add it to the cosmic tool belts. So assuming we have our giant juicer, we need the sun to be around three times its current mass. That's about how heavy the very smallest known black holes are. So we need two water suns? Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> Look forward to Dead Planet Society in your podcast feeds every other Tuesday, starting next week. All right, coming up next, we know so little about the deep sea. It is full of mystery, and it's incredibly difficult to study. Yet it is increasingly seen by some as a source of the metals that we will need to power a cleaner energy future. Though there are many others who say that we really need to leave it alone because we don't even understand it enough to understand what we're doing to it. So as deep sea mining gains interest and controversy, new research out this week provides some of the most concrete evidence yet of the potential cost to the creatures that live there. To tell us about it, reporter Chen Lai joins us from London. So welcome to the show, and tell us about this new evidence. What's been studied and how did they do it? So back in 2020, Japan performed the world's first deep sea mining test at Cobalt Ridge Crusts in the Northwest Pacific Ocean. As they mine the seabed, plumes of sediment would spread hundreds of meters around the mining apparatus. So to investigate how this impacted the marine wildlife in the vicinity, a group of researchers sent a remote vehicle down to record videos of the few hundred meters around the test site before and after the mining test. So after one year, the team found that the density of the most mobile animals like fish and shrimp who are able to swim away in the areas that were directly affected by the plumes wow. of sediment decreased by 43%. What I found really surprising is that there was an even larger drop of around 56% in animal density in the areas outside of the directly impacted areas, which the authors say that may be due to the contamination of food sources. So it seems that much of the wildlife are leaving these areas for good. And I just want to be sure, Chen, when you say density, that's like the concentration of how many of these animals we find in a specific area, like animals per square meter or what have you? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Yeah. Well, you know, when you say that wildlife are leaving these areas for good, that definitely sounds bad, especially the drop being so significant. And we're talking about just a test of mining equipment in a very small area, which is causing such a large disturbance. So do the researchers think we can expect to see similar things if large-scale commercial mining were to start? Unfortunately, we can't say for sure. I think it's, as you said, it's important to note that this test was quite small, especially compared to potential large-scale deep-sea mining operations. So this one only lasted for a total of 110 minutes, spread out over the course of seven days. In contrast, full-scale mining can cover 10 to 100 square kilometres and last for several years. Mm. The team also just looked at the 
300 by 300 meter area around the test site. So we don't know if there are any impacts beyond that. But what we can say is that the impacts of deep sea mining, even on a small scale, can dramatically affect the surrounding ecosystem. Of course, many more studies need to be conducted to really get a feel for the long-term consequences of deep sea mining. So can we take this back just a little bit? Why is it that so many people are interested in deep sea mining in the first place? What's so special down there? Is it just the cobalt? Yeah, so the deep ocean is rich with minerals and precious metals like nickel, manganese and cobalt that are all really useful to produce goods such as electric car batteries. So it probably doesn't come as a big surprise that governments and businesses have been eyeing up the prospect of mining the seabed for these resources for a while now. But so far, no commercial mining operations have begun due to the lack of regulations to govern the practice. Yeah, I guess that feels like pretty good news so far. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago when I edited our opinion pages, I published a letter from a a few hundred scientists calling for a moratorium on deep sea mining until we better understand the effects. And that's not actually happened yet, even though neither has deep sea mining. So what is it actually that's delaying the operations at the moment? Currently, the International Seabed Authority, which is the UN regulator, they've been trying to come up with a set of rules for commercial miners to follow for the past few decades. But so far, countries have failed to come up with an agreement. Scientists and environmental campaigners that you've just mentioned have also spoken out against it due to the effect it might have on deep sea ecosystems, which is what I've been diving into this week. I know there are actually some talks going on this week in Jamaica at the International Seabed Authority to discuss that mining code. So it seems like this study has really come at a crucial time in sort of the evolution of our understanding of this process, right? Yes, definitely. These talks are critical as it marks the end of the two-year deadline for the International Seabed Authority, or the ISA, to come up with the mining code which means from this summer, the ISA are now obligated to consider licenses for commercial mining operations, though not necessarily grant them. So that's why studies like these are important to help ensure that impact assessments for future deep sea mining operations consider the full range of consequences it may have on the environment. Super fascinating story. Thank you so much, Chen. Thank you. Let's take a quick break to tell you about an exciting event we have for any London-based folks interested in the impact of AI on business. We're calling it AI Unleashed. It's a half-day conference on September the 28th with an array of senior business leaders, policymakers, and scientists, and me. I'll also be there. Woohoo! And we've got a lively mix of lightning round style presentations, fireside chats and panel discussions, all asking what's next for AI and how we should regulate it. Get your super early bird discount now and please take good care of my co-host. Plus, we are still running our 10 for 10 for 10 subscription deal for the magazine. That's a 10 week subscription, meaning 10 issues for just 10 British pounds or US dollars. The offer's good until September the 10th, and we'll put links to both of those things in the show notes, which you can find at newscientist.com slash podcast. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Christy, how would you like an extra $1 million? I can't believe you're giving me a raise already. That's very much above my pay grade, though. So what's actually going on? Yeah, that's also significantly above my pay grade, too, which may shock our listeners. <laughs> yeah, so if you wanted to top up your salary, one way, though perhaps not the easiest one, is that there's a new prize worth a million dollars for settling a debate that's been raging in the world of mathematics. Ooh, so nothing esoteric or difficult or anything. Great, I'm ready. Yeah, it's all part of this story that has been going on for more than a decade now, and I personally find it so captivating. But I was wondering, I was thinking maybe you wouldn't be quite as enticed by maths conjecture at the start of this than $1 million. <laughs> so that's why I went that route. Sure. I mean, I think you'll need a little bit more than a million dollars to infect me with enthusiasm. So tell me more about what this math conjecture is about. Yeah, so there's this conjecture called the ABC conjecture that was originally proposed in the mid-1980s. And it's quite technical, but it focuses on the simple equation A plus B equals C. And it suggests that if A and B are large powers of prime numbers, and those are the numbers that are only divisible by themselves and one, then C isn't usually divisible by large powers of primes. And that's sort of in the weeds of it. But the interesting thing about it is for decades, mathematicians have believed that the conjecture is probably true, but nobody has been able to prove it. So the mathematicians thought the ABC conjecture was probably true, and now someone's actually proved it, right? That's what you're saying? Yeah, well, that really depends on who you ask. Oh, so in 2012, Shinichi Mochizuki at Kyoto University in Japan produced a proof he claimed showed that the conjecture was true. But this proof was 500 pages long and introduced a completely new area of mathematics called interuniversal type Muller theory. And many mathematicians said it was just written in an impenetrable style and have been struggling to understand the underlying ideas ever since. <laughs> mathematicians are people too. Got it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've definitely read some difficult papers in my time as a science journalist. But what about peer review? Scientists send off their papers to journals who then send it to other scientists to make sure it's correct and you know, in theory, legible. So it's published, so it must be correct, right? Yeah, that's exactly what's happened. Mochizuki sent the paper to the, a journal called Publications of the Research Institute for Mathematical Sciences, uh, where it was accepted and published. Oh, so case closed. Yeah, well, that's the thing. The problem was Mochizuki is the editor of that journal. So hardly conclusive proof. Yeah, that's kind of an awkward impression of maybe a conflict of interest. Yeah, and so he says he wasn't involved in the editing of the paper, but still. And then there, some of the extra things that have happened is there was a handy summary written of the proof for other mathematicians to help them to try to understand it. Unfortunately, that summary in itself was 300 pages long. <laughs> and then Hope the, this helps. Yeah, I hope this helps. Just read this 300-page tome. 
And then there were also two conferences held to try to build understanding on this proof. But then a pair of mathematicians said that they found an unfixable flaw in the original proof, but the fans of this new theory, IUT, don't believe that it's true. So effectively, the ABC conjecture has been in this strange state of limbo. Rather than mathematicians accepting the proof, there's this small group who strongly back Mochizuki and say that those who don't accept the proof and IUT just haven't taken the time to understand it. And then there's this other group who say the conjecture hasn't been proven yet. And I must say, like I've reported on this in the past, and it's surprisingly tense speaking to people on either side of this debate. So there's drama and we're going to, what, are we going to throw money at the problem then? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So to try to break the stalemate, there's the founder of Japanese telecoms company Duango. He's called Nobuo Kawakami. And he's offering cash prizes to who can ever prove or disprove whether Mochizuki's IUT is correct or not. So there are two prizes on offer. The first is between $20,000 and $100,000 awarded each year over the next decade to whoever writes the best paper on IUT, try and get some more research in this area. And then the second is a $1 million prize for the mathematician who finds an inherent flaw in the theory. And Kawakami said in a press conference that he hopes this is, quote, that his modest reward will help increase the number of mathematicians who decide to get involved in IUT theory. Yeah, just a modest reward. Yeah, modest it, mill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it does sound like it would be more profitable to be a naysayer in this case. I do assume you'll be keeping an eye on this one and maybe let us know if someone claims the reward to, for, you know, settling this math drama. Yeah, for sure. Of course, unless it's me who wins it, then you won't be hearing from me again. Wow. Well, we'll put a link to the full story written by Matthew Sparks in the show notes, hopefully before Tim goes missing. Now we're heading into life form of the week, and today it's an extinct one, giant sloths. Corinne Wetzel, our wildlife reporter, is here to tell us more. Hey, Corinne. Yep, we're chatting about one of my favorite Ice Age species, giant sloths. So we can all probably picture a sloth, but now imagine one the size of a grizzly bear that can walk on its hind legs. But don't worry, these guys went extinct about 10,000 years ago. You know, I wasn't actually worried, and I know everyone's talking about bringing mammoths back from the dead. I'm kind of more bummed that these guys aren't around anymore. So am I. But we do have lots of giant sloth remains, which are preserved as fossils, that archaeologists are now studying to learn more about how giant sloths interacted with humans. Interacted with humans. So <laughs> please tell me, I'm, should I be imagining them interacting with them a bit like horses riding on their backs, but maybe very slowly? Oh, Tim, if we only had evidence for that. So <laughs> what we do know is that humans hunted giant sloths, which may have been part of the cause of their demise. And we now know something else. They carved sloth bones into what may have been an early form of jewelry. That's pretty hardcore, giant sloth jewelry. As a vegetarian, I guess I'm a little bit conflicted. But tell me, whereabouts in the sloth did these bones come from? Yeah, that's a great question. So in addition to having skeletons, giant sloths were armored with bony plates, kind of like scales called osteoderms. And while a lot of these giant sloth skeletons are pretty degraded, these osteoderms have held up pretty well. So um, there's one cave in Brazil in particular called the Santa Alina Cave, where there are thousands of these osteoderms preserved. And three of these special bones looked a little different than the others. They were smooth and flat, and some had holes carved through them. So, Corinne, one, you're really kind of burying the lead on these giant sloths also coming with bony skin plates. 
two, how did scientists figure out that humans did this? Like, rather than another possible explanation, like just, you know, normal wear and tear on one's bony skin plates over thousands of years. <laughs> yeah. So they use some high powered microscopes and x-rays to look at both the surface of the bones and also the interior. And they found multi-directional scratch patterns that suggested humans had actually used stone tools to scratch, polish and carve these bones. Um, and then they also sort of perforated holes through the bones as if to be threaded on a string like a pendant. Still sounds pretty metal. Like, I'll agree with Tim there. I, I do feel like my next move is going to be to search Etsy for sloth bone jewelry. <laughs> um, what, though, like, you know, we talked about, like, these being human-caused alterations of the bones, but what, what actually makes experts link these back to jewelry specifically, not, like, tools or shelf knickknacks. <laughs> right. So that really comes down to how smoothly polished these bones were. Experts think they must have been worn daily. So maybe they were status symbols or objects to say, hey, I'm from I'm from this group of people. And if these bones really were jewelry, they're among the earliest evidence of personal artifacts in the Americas. Wow, that's really cool. So which people do we think were responsible for this? Could it be that they were making jewellery before the sloths went extinct? Or is it that they found them afterwards and then carved them afterwards? So we know that these bones were carved before they were fossilized. So it's likely this happened when giant sloths were still around, which means it must have happened before the end of the last ice age. Another clue we have into the age of these bones is just how deep they were buried. So over time, layers of dirt and rock build up kind of like layers of a cake, and they trap bones, stone tools, whatever else is there in them. And scientists can look back in this sort of cake of geological time and say, okay, we know this layer, this middle chocolate frosting layer, let's say, we know it's from this era of time. Geological cake I sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit stale though, Tim. Um, <laughs> and to get an even more accurate idea about the age of these bones, scientists can also do something called radiocarbon dating. And that looks at how carbon isotopes break down over time in an organic material like like a like a bone. So based on radiocarbon dating of other bones in the same layer of earth, these bones could be around 27,000 years old. So that's really old. That's a lot earlier than when we were last talking about humans arriving in South America. Yeah, and that's what makes this finding so surprising. So most experts agree the conservative estimate of when people arrived in the Americas was about 16,000 years ago. And finding out humans could have been there even 10,000 years earlier is a massive shift in how we think about human migration during the Ice Age. Okay, Tim, let's talk about things we take for granted. Like making paper. Probably sounds like a very natural, biology-friendly process, right? Yeah, I guess I've always thought so. I mean, a crude description, but something like chuck some logs into a blender, then pour your wood smoothie into a flat mold to dry out. You know, something like that. I mean, that's kind of it. I Actually, in grade school, I got to do something similar, but you put lots of paper into a blender, uh, and that is essentially recycled paper. But unfortunately, making fresh new paper actually involves more than that. There's water, lots of energy, and caustic chemicals because you don't want every part of the tree in your paper, especially this thing called lignin. That's this big, stiff molecule that kind of helps shore up plant cell walls, and it gives them structure. It's a big part of what makes wood wood. I see. But then it's not what makes paper paper. Yeah, correct. Unfortunately, paper is more about the cellulose fibers. These are the carbs of the tree, as it were. You have to get rid of the lignin. And as you might expect from the material that makes trees rigid, it's really resistant to being broken down. So the ways we figured out to do that involve sulfur compounds, chlorine, 
and loads and loads of energy. The annual carbon footprint of the paper industry globally is estimated at 168 million tons, 35 of those million in the U.S. alone. Whoa, that's a lot. And I mean, just around the office, we've got our scripts, napkins, books. In the loos, there's all the toilet paper and paper towels. Yeah, and then we've got like cleaning supplies and even like tampons, you know, things people really depend on. Don't worry, though. The news is there's been progress towards a solution. It's called CRISPR. That's the solution. (laughs) CRISPR. So that's the so-called molecular scissors for precise gene editing that we often hear about. But normally we're talking about CRISPR in the context of human diseases like cancers and then maybe helping crops like corn to be a bit more drought tolerant. So what are we doing with it in trees? Yeah, we are tackling the lignin problem. A fairly giant team of researchers, including forestry experts and someone who's been studying the genome of poplar trees for the last several decades, they used CRISPR to edit multiple genes associated with the production of this lignin. And then they grew a bunch of baby trees that they hoped had less of it. So how did they know which genes to target? Yeah, that's a really fun detail for me. They actually used AI in combination with these decades of studies of poplar tree genes to help them figure it out. Because it turns out that there are like tens of thousands of combinations of genes you could target to knock down lignin. But you can't grow 69,000 different poplar trees for a study like this. So they had a machine learning model help predict which gene combinations would result in less healthy trees, which was most of them. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. If lignin is part of what makes a tree a tree, you might accidentally make some really very floppy trees. (laughs) Yeah, which I'd kind of actually love to see. But most of the combinations were bad for trees, but they found like 0.5% of the combinations left to try were 174 baby poplars, which they grew for about six months and then harvested. But, you know, they all seemed basically fine for that that six-month period. And what about the lignin? This is the best part. The best of their crispered trees seemed to have about double the ratio of the good paper-making carbohydrate stuff compared to lignin, at least, again, at that six-month mark, which, if the trend holds, could mean vastly more efficient paper-making and a lot less chemicals and energy required to get the good stuff. That's really great. So how soon can I look forward to this in more environmentally friendly paper? Well, I wouldn't put the Dunder Mifflin order in just yet. (laughs) Trees take some time to grow. But the research team plans to whittle their 174 promising gene lines down to a smaller number of the sort of most good-looking samples, and then they're going to plant them outdoors for a field test. And it is possible we could start seeing some kind of commercial use by 2040? 2040. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I guess I'll look forward to environmentally friendly paper and nuclear fusion then. Yeah. All the good stuff in 2040, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so that full story from Jason Aaron Murugesu is in the show notes. Before we go, we have once again discovered that what goes up must come down, and that applies to meteorites too. Researchers think they found the first evidence of a rock that got flung off Earth and then returned to Earth thousands of years later. Why do they think the meteorite is coming from inside the house? It has mineral and chemical signatures that are similar to volcanic rocks on our planet, as opposed to asteroids or planets like Mercury or Mars, plus structures indicating plate tectonics, which no other planet in our solar system has. And while not every scientist is convinced yet, I do think this is proof that even rocks agree Earth is the only good planet to spend significant time on. (laughs) Yeah, nine out of ten rocks agree Earth is great. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. 
As always, our show notes have links to all the fantastic new scientist reporting you heard about on the show today. You can subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on, and thanks for your support. Bye for now. Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 